gentle listener and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I'm your host Michael Lilienthal and this is my guest Ethan Bartlett. Hi. And we are, as the title says, in a room with Scotch. Yes. <laughs> uh, we've, we've had to do this several times now. We are each in a room and each of us has in that room Scotch. Yes. So. <laughs> and I am in a different room from the room I was in last time. Uh, because yeah. I just moved into a new place, which has required the scientists who make our gyroscope devices, they've had to add several uh, hinges and pulleys and um, at least one <laughs> one sort of hot air balloon. It's just all around more complicated than than it needs to be. Yeah, but... and also one of them yeah. stepped on my <laughs> copy of The Orchardist, so... I will be without that today, but you know. Ugh, that jerk. Yeah. Well, that's that's the book we're going to be talking about. We'll get to that. Um, but uh, yeah, we're we're drinking scotch, and we managed with our, our our podcast scientists managed to make it so that even though we are in separate rooms, we do have the same scotch, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um. So yeah. Uh, today, Ethan, for uh, our discussion, we are going to be drinking the Glenrothes, the Glenrothes, I think, Glenrothes, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, Speyside Single Malt Scotch Whiskey, 12 years old, matured in sherry seasoned oak casks and bottled at natural color. Yes, me also. Mm-hmm. Now... Was your was your bottle, Ethan, uh, approved by Corden Motor? I want to <laughs> say actually. I want to say Cotton Mather, but I feel like that's a Puritan <laughs> preacher who would like deeply disapprove of the whole concept of the show. Um, yeah, he wouldn't like any piece of it. <laughs> uh, starting with the fact that it's too Lutheran. Uh, to Gordon, I think, is the first name. Gordon. Yeah, whatever name you're right, trying yeah. to read, uh, I also have him. So our bottles were even approved by the same man. So this is okay. practically like we're in the same room. Basically, yeah. You know, as I'm holding this bottle now, Ethan, that I haven't held before, like, first of all, it's really easy to palm. Yeah, it's fantastic. I agree. Um, but then, like, you stick your thumb in the bottom there where it's, you know, got that little divot and it's got these little things on the back. You can hold it really easily just sideways like that look at that yeah do you like do you feel like just something deeply wrong about playing with your 12 year old scotch bottle like this <laughs> like the epitome of what your parents and grandparents meant when they said don't play with your food <laughs> but also i think i am gonna like, just hold it's, it's the culmination of all of that but also yeah it's it's pleasant to hold. Yeah, no, it is. I was gonna say I think yeah. I'm gonna just hold my thumb in the divot this whole time. Like, right? It's, yeah, it's so pleasant. It's just yeah, it's just gonna stay there. Yeah. Well, um, this is this is the scotch we are going to be drinking, so we should yes. um, open this up and and pour ourselves a glass of it, not just not just play with it. Though the playing uh, with it will continue. Oh, yes. And I, I gotta make sure I, I give my wife a, a sip of this, too, at some point. Yes, otherwise you will but lose. But we'll, we'll talk about that, or Karen will, because now... Right, now you have to get uh, Karen in here to read the rules. Okay, so for, like, for the changing times, do you think we should have her, like, read the rules any differently, or...? You know, why break tradition? Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> uh, plus, then we'd have to, like, rewrite them, and that sounds like a lot of work, so. I know, and we don't like doing work on this that's podcast. Uh, yeah, so, Karen, why don't you please please come and read the rules? Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or 
any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number 6. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number 7. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle gentle listener. listener. Thank you, Karen. We appreciate you. Uh, Much appreciated. Much appreciated. All right. uh, So, Ethan... um, as as it goes when we uh when the glasses clink so to speak that's when the rules take effect so uh here's mud in your eye uh you bet your bottom dollar i don't think that's a real salute that has actually been used in the history of the world but like you taking here's mud in your eye made me put me in like a like Bowery Boys, like 19th century New York kind of. I don't know. I'm trying to explain the unexplainable, really. <laughs> I I wasn't gonna question your your choice of salute, but um. Don't worry, I did it for you. Good. Um, one thing I want to say, Ethan, uh, without uh, breaking the rules here, if you look on the box that you just opened. The uh, yeah. the inside flax one uh, flaps one of them has a, a hashtag written on it. Does it? And so I think, yeah, I think when this episode comes out, it, that hashtag will need to be on there. Okay, I'm gonna believe you because I can't find it, but it's oh, it's this one. You see, on top. I don't think I have it. Right there. You open it this way, and it's on there. Oh, <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we so, are not with that diversion. We are nothing if not on this podcast. Basically, free gorilla advertising for certain brands of consumable items. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was, I was, I was waiting with bated breath for how you were going to finish that. <laughs> um, I know. I but, alright, as you alluded to, Ethan, uh, the book we are reading today, or discussing today, is The Orchardist by Amanda Coplin. Yes. Um, and this one was my pick. I had read it before. Uh, it had been several years. I, I'm trying to think how many years. But it. I think this was actually the last book I read before we started this podcast. Oh, okay. Um. So, um, South of the Border, West of the Sun was the book I read immediately after reading this book. Um, so that's that. And and so because of that, it's always kind of been in the back of my mind is one that I wanted us to read. Um, and I wanted to come back to it to, to see if it affected me the same way the (laughs) second time around. Sure. Um, and that's. I think about where I want to start with this is the effect of this book. We talked in Light Between Oceans when we read that book about the emotional effect yes. of things. This book also has quite the emotional effect. And I want to know what what you think about that. Well, I was trying to like figure out exactly what you meant by emotional effect. And then I remembered finishing this book and just, like, curling up in a ball on the floor for about seven entire days. (laughs) 
not necessarily weeping, mm-hmm. but just having mm-hmm. to be in a ball on the floor. Um, right. Yeah, and like, I think I may have sent you some texts to this effect when I was uh, reading it, sort of at the at the time that I was reading it, um, and the, to the effect that uh, I was really sort of resentfully, but unavoidably wondering if uh, there was much more to your your thing that you said about you don't like it's not that you don't like being emotionally manipulated it's that you don't like when you know you're being emotionally manipulated um because (laughs) um, because because and this like and the other thing about it i don't remember if i mentioned this at the time but i the the effect the emotional effect that this book had on me i can think of only two other authors that i've ever read who hit in the mm. exact same way um and one of them is isaac denison uh who is probably most famous for writing out of africa but um my favorite novella by her is babbitt's feast uh mm-hmm. isaac denison and the other one is Gene Wolfe. Um, like, mm-hmm. for a completely non-genre, non, not, like, at all really, you know, fantastical, speculative, or even magic realist book, like, there was something very Wolfian about it, and, um, and here I go, talking sure. about Gene Wolfe again, uh, and, you know, Elzebo Soup is gonna fight me one day. <laughs> Uh, for encroaching on their territory, but um, you know, Gene Wolfe is, of course, famous among those who who know him for having this very elusive style, where um, it, both the plot and some of some of the character stuff, but also the emotion, is sort of between the lines. Um, he's maybe similar to like J.D. Salinger, where he'll he'll report the effect of an emotion and let you read the actual emotion in. Um, mm. And uh, Wolf supposedly learned that style or that effect from writing letters home to his mother during the Korean War, um, where he didn't want to tell her what actually was happening, but he was experiencing such acute, um, I'd want to call it PTSD, except it was like happening at, it was, you know, it was, it was just more like TSD, right? Traumatic Stress Disorder. <laughs> if that's a thing which i i sure. have no idea if it is but um you know but he he wanted to talk about that but he couldn't he didn't want to like describe to his mother and traumatize her with what he was actually seeing um so he learned to just bury the emotions and uh i don't i don't know that isaac denison or amanda copland learned to do it in a similar way but the effect is very similar to me where it's like i couldn't point to what on the page was destroying me i just knew it was destroying me um mm-hmm. and yeah sure. so uh and and i do have to say that like again maybe maybe it's it's just true that i just don't like it when i know how i'm being emotionally manipulated because like that for me is one of the great like one of the best things about reading fiction specifically is is when an mm-hmm. author can just dig into my emotions in such a way that like i didn't know it was possible to feel this way for this particular reason <laughs> sure sure um well i want to dig I know, into maybe, that a little maybe... bit um and it's going to tie into some of the themes yeah. that i want to discuss Go on, please yeah, uh, I, some of the themes I want to discuss about this uh, this book too. Um, my general impression about why it would seem to affect you without letting you know that it's affecting you uh, is that it gives you the space to have the real emotions that you would. It's not telling you what to feel. It's presenting you with things and allowing you to feel in response but it's so masterfully done that you're going to feel the way the author wants you to feel anyway um 
And what I mean by some of that space is one of the central themes of this book, and I think I've mentioned this before, even before bringing this book to the podcast, is the the concept of silence in this book. Yes. Does that strike you as familiar? <laughs> um, and that that starts right at the. I mean, before before the book itself, in um, the the epigraph, uh, it's. I think a poem. I didn't actually do my research on this, but uh, it says the roses you gave me kept me awake with the sound of their petals falling. Jack Gilbert. Um, so that right there, the sound of petals falling, you know, it's, it's, it sounds like almost Eastern yeah. philosophy sort of stuff. But like the idea there is, is, the impact of silence is is something that you can hear and this book offers you like it presents it's it's part of the lives of the characters um the idea of silence silence itself is almost a character itself but in that idea of silence it presents the reader with silence that allows us to react like even just literally on the page there are some chapters that are a paragraph long and rather than mush that together with into the next chapter it's just a page that has three lines on it and the rest of the yeah. page is blank, <laughs> you know? Um, it's giving you space. That's 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 kind of what I'm thinking about this this book, which um, you go into the orchard itself and it starts... It's massive. It's this massive amount of space uh, that's, that's really hard to put a boundary on. And when the boundary starts getting put onto this space, that's when... Um, the characters' lives are, are changed. It, a lot of this is just an exploration of boundaries and trying to find out where the limits are um, in personal interactions, in um, life, yeah. <laughs> in ownership. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, I don't know. There's, there's a lot that can be said about yeah. silence in this book, starting with the character mm. of Talmadge. Um and the at the very beginning you don't it starts with just this massive okay. description of Talmadge. Can the I, whole first paragraph um, is can i first of yeah. all uh, if you've avoid got... the trap that you just yeah. laid for me uh and second of all um, what trap would that be? just just uh i don't i don't i i just said words i i don't necessarily know what they mean um no, but uh, um, I, <laughs> I I want to talk about that opening just all by itself, and that's why I want to interrupt you here uh, to respond to that idea yeah. of no, that's fine. silence specifically, and the idea that uh, mm-hmm. sort of well, so the the phrase that you said that that tripped something in my brain is is that uh, something about the um, the authors. The, the, the uh, sort of emotional manipulation or presentation or whatever, it gives you space to feel what the author intends you to feel anyway. Um, and I mm-hmm. don't disagree that, by and large, uh, this will probably happen with this book for anyone who's like reading it with any kind of sympathy at all. Um, but I think that that also hits on something sure. that almost and it's 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 almost intangible if not completely intangible or even unlike nameable but a quality that sets a book like this for me apart from a book like flight between oceans not to continue bashing that book but mm. um, <laughs> um <laughs> it in the sense that to me a great work of literature sort of will do what it does or have its effect no matter how you react to it and i think that that maybe and again this is this is extremely subjective but mm-hmm. i get the sense that light between oceans needs you to react a very particular certain mm-hmm. way in order to accomplish everything it wants to accomplish where the orchardist gives a sense mm. and this may just be a writing style that i personally prefer or it may be a quality maybe a quality thing or uh, something else entirely but the orchardist gives me the impression that 
the emotions that it has, the, the stuff that it contains, will be there whether you catch them or whether you react to them or not. Um, almost like it's this great sure. edifice of language and of storytelling that um, would love for you. It, it's like someone who would love for you to come over to their house, but they don't need your company in any particular way. <laughs> All right, um, all right. And again, like, I don't know, there's pr- I see. I see there's probably saying. a better way to say it, and I feel like I'm I'm grasping at things that are extremely hard to uh sort of even name or or conceptualize, but um mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, that's that's what I thought about about silence. Now please continue with this talking about this just yeah. and again, um I'm a, I'm I'm gonna let you finish, but I, I did want to uh, uh, <laughs> mention that like I think one text I sent you, maybe the first text I sent you about this book was like page three. Wow, that was quite an opening. Page seven, this book is really good, and then I was like page ten, I will go to yeah. war for Talmage, something like that. Anyway, um. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that's and that's that's more or less the the reaction I had when I when I first read it and then reading it again this time. I like just I, I, not to give too much background information, but when I found this book, oh, I sure. found it at a Goodwill uh on the bookshelf there, you know, just like going around and the 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 cover called out to me. I thought it looked like it was interesting, so I opened it up to the first page and started reading <laughs> sure. and I bought it. <laughs> um and so i mean the the opening is powerful it's it's extremely extremely well done i mean it's just yeah. descriptive uh for the whole first paragraph and well, then going on too just describing talmage you get the idea of who this central figure is yeah. and it's it's so detailed and uh, with like it, it doesn't um shirk away from his flaws because the very first sentence is about his right. face being pitted his face was as pitted as the moon you find out later why um but like yeah, he's, he's not an attractive right, character right from in the a start he's certainly sense. nothing like a mary sue or a gary stew or whatever you wanna uh like this is clearly right. not any kind of wish fulfillment <laughs> or i wouldn't call having a pitted face like a flaw but it's certainly not something you'd give a character who was meant to be like but, clark kent or something Right, right. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's he's already the sort of character who's affected by things. Um, it, it talks about his past, the the desires he had had as a young man, worries, fears of which he remembered only the husks, you know, things like. So he's he's old, and he's got all these things that have happened to him. He's got yeah. regret all over the place too. So you set the stage for this character, and he hasn't even spoken right. yet um you you don't he it's it's almost almost breaking that rule of show don't tell okay it is quite borderline um, like and this is actually something that i wanted to kind of focus on um with this opening much as i know it's Mm -hmm. treading dangerous ground for me um but to (laughs) me and this is the analogy because i was you know just the other day i was rethinking through this book as uh, as being as much prep as I ever do for this podcast, um, other than usually reading the book in question. Um, but I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I conceived of the thought that the first three pages of The Orchardist remind me of nothing so much as the opening shot of one of my all-time favorite, like, 21st century movies, um which is Outlaw King. Uh, it's this movie that came out on Netflix last year about uh, mm. Robert the Bruce. Um, it's freaking fantastic. Uh, I'm not going to say anything more than that because this is not the Outlaw King podcast, but um, the, the th- have, you, have you seen that movie, Michael? I have not. Um, it's been on my list so for a the, while. The first 10... I, I won't spoil but... anything, really, other than to say the first... 10 minutes of that movie are a single shot um the uh the camera never cuts for the first 10 minutes of that movie and 
Um, what that is in film terms is just basically a director power move or a director sort of gauntlet that's thrown because um, the, there's a thing and the more sort of film nerd boys you have in your life, the more obnoxious you probably will find this discussion. But um, there is a thing in film about holding your shots as long as possible, right? Most shots in film or TV shows are well under a minute often they're under 10 seconds so the longer you hold a shot um first of all the more difficult that is to stage and choreograph and direct because you have to you know have all your mm-hmm. lighting set up and make sure your boom shadows are out of out of frame and all of that kind of thing um but the longer you hold a shot the more skillful it's often considered and this this goes all the way back back to hitchcock um you sometimes hear them hear extremely long shots called rope shots because Hitchcock made a movie called Rope that was all ten minute takes. Um, Orson Welles said like, you know the mm. the measure of a director is how long he can hold his shots for. Anyway, um, the point being that the first and and so okay, but not only that, but when you when you hold a shot for that long in film, you have to know exactly what you're doing. Again, for some of the reasons that I said but also because a long oh, yeah. shot gets tedious really easily. So the longer it is, the more you have to be sure you know mm-hmm. what you're doing, creating interest or whatever. And so I promise all of this is relevant, or at least most of it is, um, mm-hmm. because yeah. to me, the, <laughs> the, right. the first well, three pages of this book are the authorial equivalent of opening with a 10-minute long rope shot. Um because the exact uh, thing or set of things that Amanda Copeland chooses to do is just risky if you don't know exactly what you're doing. And the fact that she chooses to do it and pulls it off is a power move, um, the equivalent of um, mm-hmm. opening Outlaw King with this 10-minute shot. Because the rest of Outlaw King is like pretty straightforward directorially uh there's there's not a ton of other gimmicky tricks like that but like that opening shot just sets this like power to it and uh uh the the opening three pages of the orchardists do the same thing like this is among other things amanda copland saying look i can write a three-page character description that at this point is technically speaking is telling and not showing um you know in in the sense that you don't have a mm-hmm. character basis to use to show anything um except that and you you actually uh sort of pointed at one thing in the in the very beginning that um is part of what uh, Copland does here very skillfully uh you mentioned that she she includes his Talmadge's pitted face um, and she includes a lot of stuff like that that mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily tell you about the character directly, but it tells you about the tone and the world of the story. Um, and it gives you foreshadowings and indications of both the character mm-hmm. and the story itself. Um, yeah, so mm-hmm. in, in a, again, a similar sense to... Uh, an opening 10 minute long unbroken shot uh, the, this opening th- we, I think it is literally I think I counted a 3 page long character description um, is, it is basically breaking the rules but it's, it's the sort of breaking the rules that you can do if you know exactly what you're doing and mm-hmm. why you're doing it well exactly that's it she, this whole thing is setting up the entire rest of the book and it's all centered on this character of Talmadge. And it well, it makes you invested in this character of Talmadge. It it lets yeah. you know that he's important. Um and it 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 gives so many details that you're you're not possibly going to remember all of them, but they're going to come back right. as the book goes on. And you're going to start like I mean, even just that first one, the the pockmarked face, it comes back again to see part of, you know, that suffering that he went through the the sickness and things which right. informs his character moving forward um and like even with that too where you know he's he's tall broad-shouldered and thick without being stocky like that's the second sentence 
uh, is where it starts. Uh, after after describing his pockmarked face, his face was as pitted as the moon. He was tall, broad-shouldered, and thick without being stocky. Like, there you're going into right. hero territory, right? He's, he's, he's depicted as this, this more classical hero or demigod sort of figure. If it weren't for his scars, right. uh, he would be immortal. Um, which, of course, he's not immortal, <laughs> as you find out by the end of the book. Um, <laughs> um, we should give the listener a chance to read, shouldn't we? Oh, yeah, we should. Now that well, I've completely I mean, spoiled... ruined it for them. <laughs> well, I was going to say, we've spoiled the first three pages. But... Right, right. But now we're, we've yeah. whetted their appetite to read the first three pages. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So go go read the... read the. Tell you what, listener. Um, read the first three pages now that, we've, now that we've gone through this. And then try to put the book down. Um, and if you can put the book down, <laughs> like... I would say stop listening to this podcast, but I gotta say first, like, go to your local pastor or priest, because you probably don't have a soul. <laughs> and you want to get that taken care of? Um, but yeah, so now that I've thrown that gauntlet, uh, go ahead nice. and read the book. This is the hail Ethan will die on. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. Um, wasn't that a great book? Uh, we'll we'll get to ratings later. Oh my later. gosh. Um, okay. <laughs> it's, it's gonna be a great mystery with this one. Yes, great mystery. Um. So okay. Yeah. This first chapter is extremely short, and I, I don't want to spend all our time on this first chapter. But there are a lot of things in this first chapter that really just. It, I mean, it it's just the big splash in the water that starts the whole rest of the book, but in a very interesting way. Um, so he doesn't speak until three pages in, um, he's selling apples uh, in town. Uh, this woman comes up and, um, it says, she, uh, it's towards the top of page five. She reached for an apple, but did not touch it. Glanced dubiously at a bushel of paler apples. He presented, he presently uncovered. What are those? Now, first of all, there are no quotation marks around this dialogue. What are those? And then he glanced down, greenings, Rhode Island greenings, uh, which again, no quotation marks. So here, he doesn't even get the first line. He responds. Uh, his, his character is, from the beginning, invested in responding to things. Um, and as he's responding here, he's just giving mm -hmm. this information about these apples. But then it describes his voice. When he spoke, his voice was low and sounded unused. <sighs> He cleared his throat. <laughs> um, then it goes on. But so like the style of the writing here, even in the, the format of the dialogue, gives uh, a couple of impressions here. Like it leaves the dialogue still half in silence because yeah. there aren't quotation marks around it. So and it also gives the impression of these things being uh, kind of half remembered. Um, right. that, that this is all in memory and being recalled uh and and brought forth as it goes on now right. there are a few instances in this entire book where there are quotation marks and there are italics uh that mark a couple of things yeah. most of the italics that i noticed um are in uh relation to the character of clee who does not speak but oh, okay, he, yeah. he he communicates by gestures and things uh and sometimes those gestures and 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 his behaviors are interpreted by the narrator inserting italics forming the dialogue right um not always though uh frequently not and sometimes even those sorts of things are there the way the rest of the dialogue is just put in without quotation marks but there are a right. few occasions and i was trying to find even just one of them where you do have quotation marks it's it's not many of them um okay sure Does, and is i there any i kind of rhyme or reason to yeah, well, I, I was trying to find some sort of, I was trying to find some sort of unifying theme for all of, okay, here's, here, okay, um, th this is maybe my only thought on this, page 375, um, there are newspapers that are going on, uh, oh. and it says, the Leavenworth Echo described her, um, Angeline, um, as tall, quote, 
Tall, slight of build, with strong likeness to her aunt, dark, long dark hair not done up in the style of the young ladies of the day, but kept in twin braids down to her back like a schoolgirl, end quote. So there you've got some quotes, and it's like, that is being quoted from a newspaper, which memory needed this concrete thing filling in that detail, is, sure. is kind of my cons- the concept I have behind that. I think there are like a few other things where it's like the reports of a few people said this um, or other people said that this person said this. And because of this multiple testimony to it that comes out in quotation marks, that's the best I can see. But like it's it's deliberate. That's that's the point here that that the way it's and honestly, if there were anything that was going to cause me to put the book down early on, it's the fact that there were no quotation marks. And when I (laughs) read this. The first time I was like, oh, my gosh, you're doing this same stupid gimmick that all these books that want to be popular are doing and they're not using quotation marks or they're doing funny things with punctuation and blah, 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 blah. But but Amanda Copeland is doing this deliberately Um, and it's it's apparent from the beginning here. Um, Then going on, I want to I want to like finish my commentary on this chapter one here. Um, as he's giving this woman the apples that she's buying, uh, she turned around and looked behind her and said, uh, colon, the next paragraph, look what the cat drug in those two looking over here like that. You aren't careful. They'll come rob you. Hooligan looking. She sniffed. Um, so like she's looking back at these two individuals and we don't know anything about them yet. We don't, uh, we get another two lines or so before we hear like who they actually are, but she's already condemned them, which because we are already annoyed with this character by how she's treating Talmadge, we are already in favor of them. Right. right? (laughs) We disagree with this woman uh, because she seems very uh, holier than thou, you know? Um, And so then we see these two girls and Talmadge seems not bothered too much by them like just ignoring them yeah um it, it even says at uh top of page six what did two girls mean to him and he starts falling <laughs> right. asleep um and then he wakes up uh and there's a, a boy waking him up saying that these girls just robbed him so there we get this kind of um flip uh, again that this condemnation of this woman turns out to be true that they're gonna rob you he wasn't careful. They did rob him. Um, right. But then he just stands and watches. He He's inactive at this point. Yeah. They steal the fruit from him, which they're, okay, they're stealing fruit. Okay. Right. This fruit they're not supposed to have. They're stealing it. Right. Okay. <laughs> right. Um, and one of them is pregnant. So there's a child. Right. Um. But, uh, or they're both pregnant, that's right. Um, Yes. But, so, okay. It's setting up so much that, like, you can guess at where this is going to go from chapter one. There's so much in the past already, in the antecedent action in chapter one, that you can guess at where a lot of this is going to go. It's it's really sparking this action that, okay, you, you get the you know that Talmadge is going to meet these girls again, uh, that they have something going on in the past that's, that's afflicting them. Um, right. Because, you know, even though that, that woman's condemnation of them turned out to be true, you're not ready to condemn them for being wrong for what they did. You want to understand why they did it because of how they're being described. You know, they're pregnant. It's, it's described they've got grotesquely swollen bellies. So this is, yeah. uh, their pregnancy is depicted as a curse. Uh to them uh from this this beginning from this description and so they have some demon in their closet that needs to be addressed and talmage who we are already set up to think of as a hero has to be the one to save them and to confront that demon so i don't know that i necessarily would go as far as talmage as savior figure um especially not from this first chapter uh but the way I read it, it, it's it's different in the in the route it takes, but it ends up at a similar place. Um, 
that you're you're set up to think you're you're basically set up to uh like you like you said michael sympathize with talmage um to view mm-hmm. his judgments as as right uh so you could also view it as like narratively we've already put the reader in a position of of i guess trust towards talmage um so that when he doesn't see a reason to react negatively to the girls, you also don't see a reason to do that. Or in other words, mm. you trust him more than you trust the old woman. And so when he just, you know, sees that there's right. more going on or doesn't see a reason to uh, go after them, even though they've technically <laughs> stolen from him, uh you as the reader are most likely to sympathize with that perspective um oh sure the, it it to me it it reads a little bit more like him not having to condemn them or to fence them off so to speak but to him being willing to give them space to do what they need to do to survive mm-hmm. knowing that he himself will not be ultimately harmed by this and that his inaction is in a sense the best action that he could have taken um and that i think um goes on uh the rest too and i think you hit hit on something really key there too because he needs to give them space and literally he does um in the in the upcoming chapters he literally gives them a space where they can deal with things um, so you might not necessarily anticipate him being uh, a sort of active savior figure that's going to like go out and be their champion, so to speak. But, you know, because, uh, of this, this sympathy, uh, that you have with his character, you anticipate him being the, the hero in a broader sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely being, being someone who he he provides for them and and you yeah. kind of anticipate some degree of that even if that provision is just a safe space for them yeah i definitely um, i definitely agree with that and that's and if, that's what he does yeah if sort of providing a space or or creating safety uh is your definition of like him being their hero like i i have no problem with that idea um and in fact i think and I'm going to make a connection here that I'm going to sort of try to drop in the listener's lap for them to do what they would like to with, including rejecting it altogether, um, because I'm not certain about it, but uh, I want to suggest it at the very least. And that is, um, it has to do with a thought I had um, throughout this book, and I'm having... And again, I'm reading uh, Mary Stewart's Merlin trilogy for the first time. Um, and with both of them, you have, you know, extremely brilliant, clearly very intelligent female authors writing male characters um, and writing them in a very male way. Yeah. Right? There's, there's nothing, um, there's, I don't think there's anything about Talmadge that you could say is is emasculated in any real non garbage oh, no. sense of the phrase um right <laughs> and to have him as as your main character um and uh you know i i uh uh i don't like to to try to take on the mantle of the term feminist um partly because the very definition of that word is so complicated but also because usually people who call themselves mm-hmm. feminists are trying to sell you something at least men who do that um in my experience Mm -hmm. um but i you know i certainly did especially when i was in grad school i i thought that feminist criticism had a lot to offer um especially to someone like me who's you know never been a woman um the non-controversial thing i think (laughs) i can say um but (laughs) pretty objectively true (laughs) right um it it makes like if i were a feminist critic i think i'm trying to say i would be interested in comparing talmage as hero to a long literary tradition of t- 
tall, beefy, broad-shouldered, potentially pock-faced heroes written by men. Um, the most mm. obvious example that's coming mm-hmm. to mind, and it's going to make everyone uh, think it's, it's going to make everyone think I'm silly, but is Conan the Barbarian, as originally written by Robert E. Howard, um, who is another tall, sure. broad-shouldered. Uh, I think he might he might even be described as as having a pockmarked face here and there, um, but very silent, very masculine hero. Um, and mm-hmm. Talmadge to me, and again, the the thing I'm I'm the least certain about is whether I want to call this sort of a, a female or a feminist response to masculine heroism, but. Um, Talmadge to me represents a, if not a rejection, at least a very different path of heroism from that, like, you know, Western mm-hmm. slash pulp fantasy sort of uh, um, wish fulfillment, I guess, hero. Um, there's there's a term I'm looking for, but sure. I'm not thinking of it. Uh, so that, in other words, and, and again, I, we don't have to cast this in feminist terms. Um, we could just talk about Talmadge as a different sort of of savior figure or hero, in that hmm. he doesn't go out and like kill people. He doesn't even like the one rescue he tries to do pr- fails pretty badly. Like the closest thing to like a. Uh, you know, heist action sequence just just goes. It's a clever plan, really, and it but it just goes completely wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but that right. Talmadge at his best and at his most truly heroic might be almost in the negative space, in the or in the literal space, actually, in, in mm-hmm. giving giving people space and creating uh, safety around them rather than directly like flinging anyone over his shoulder and running out of a burning building or through a battlefield or anything like that. Yeah, I think I I wanted to talk about that scene, too, because it is pivotal, I think, for the book. Because just like you say, Talmadge is there trying, essentially, to be the action hero. Yeah. Um, When he's trying to to break Della out of jail um, and, and get her free. And it is a clever plan, and he he works it out really well. But then, yeah, everything goes to pot because, um, well, this book does. I want to say that it undermines your expectations, but I don't think that's exactly true. Um, it it sets up expectations, and then sets up scenarios that, if it were a different book, you would expect to go a different way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, and that's, that's the big one, um, is that, that heist, the jailbreak section, which a lot of time is spent on. You get a lot of different perspectives from it. Um, you, you see it through different characters' eyes. You see it from, uh, newspaper reports later. Um, so there's a lot of attention given to that incident, but it, it is completely upturned because... This book isn't going to give you that loud, explosive, happy ending. Right. Um, e- even with the character of Michelson, or Mickelson, right. um, probably Mickelson, um, who you find out is the the father of these two girls' children, um, and essentially is is running a, a brothel and enslaving children. Yeah. Um, for those purposes, I mean, one of the most despicable characters in literature that you can think of. Um, yeah, you want him to get his just desserts. You want Talmadge. You want that scene of Talmadge, you know, pummeling him, punching right. his face in. You right. know, it's never gonna happen though. It never does. He dies in jail, right? Uh, Is that like? It's pretty unremarkable. Yeah, no, that sounds right. I as think I remember, he, I think he dies in jail. Um. I think even the fact that we don't yeah. actually remember terribly clearly is it's really not is telling about this. On or ultimately important to the book, to the story as a whole. Exactly. Um, it, it's important to several of the characters, or at least it, it seems like it is. Right. Uh, 
mm-hmm. ultimately we as the reader are shown that it's not partly by the again the fact mm-hmm. that it's dwelt on so little that you and i cannot necessarily remember for sure um right even without that um, it's, it's uh, like speaking of like action heroes too like della is trying to get that yeah um, no, Della Della's trying to, to, to accomplish that sort of victorious ending, too, even if she has to damn herself to right. do it. Um, and she sets herself up as this action hero for, through uh, when she leaves and goes with the men on their, their um, horse poaching, right. uh, essentially. Um, well, that's... Like she's she's being the cowboy right. she's, or the cowgirl, you know, she's going out and she's she's doing things she's being active yeah and then with the d- distinct opposite of talent much, much pulpier sort of novel that that part of her life would be the setup um to mm-hmm. her like you know it'd be the training montage essentially to her coming back finding mickelson uh tracking mm-hmm. him down and having that final confrontation like the the arc that Della goes through is very close right. to that exact like you know you could see it probably in like a Zane Grey western or a, or a pulpy western film um, you know of of that being all of the setup mm-hmm. to this final violent confrontation where maybe Della becomes the antihero because she chooses to take the law into her own hands uh, but ultimately this despicable person is wiped off the face of the earth and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're, you as the, as the reader or the viewer would be, uh, sort of set up to be okay with Della's choice on a personal level. Um, but this novel not only doesn't give you that ultimately, it works very hard even before that to take it away from you. Like it's several times suggested or even said outright that Mickelson's sick by the time Della tracks him down. Like what point would would stabbing him get you like he's he's Mm -hmm. gonna almost certainly die in jail and if he ever gets out you know he'll die shortly after that like um even before whatever there is Mm -hmm. of a of a final confrontation or a final decision like that is made very clear yeah that it's it, it 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 repeatedly the book reminds you that it's not going to give you the resolution that you would want from that kind of that kind of story it it instead is extremely insistent upon the silence and that return to the silence and that space which i think is tied right in with your question about talmage as the the sort of feminist response to the barbarian hero um right that it's he he is more willing to give that space he's not asserting himself um He's allowing others to be in in the space by by presenting silence and by allowing his identity to be in silence. He's allowing others to have their identity. Yeah, as yeah, well. Absolutely. Um, and like it, it, it tears him apart too. It's not an easy thing for him. But like when Della yeah. leaves, he's racked with guilt over that, and over and over again, he keeps saying, "I shouldn't have let right. her," which which ties into those these questions of of ownership. Right. Um, and like, he's, he's being protective, but does that mean that he owns these girls, you know, whereas Mickelson was asserting his ownership, um, over them. And so for him to have forbidden Della to leave would have been to make him essentially the same as, as Mickelson. Yeah, absolutely. And, Um, you know, that's pointed out to him several times. Uh, and I want to say... Oh man, who's his friend in town? The the sort of medicine man. Uh, Caroline, yeah, Caroline Mitty. Mitty is particularly keen to uh, say no. Like the girls stayed with you, that doesn't mean they belong to you. Um, and mm-hmm. and that doesn't even mean you have the authority over them. A fatherhood, even though like their relationship is essentially surrogate, you know, father daughter, um, mm-hmm. sort of thing. Uh, feel like I was gonna say something yeah. else about that, but I've forgotten what it was. Um, well, I wanted to I wanted to to draw a connection to the this um this line of demarcation between Talmadge and Mickelson again, because you know 
Mickelson again has this brothel that he owns with these slave children, right. essentially. Um, and Talmadge, it's given fairly early on. It might even be in just like the second chapter, which is essentially just his background, that he has frequented brothels in the past. Yeah. And like, it's not something that he like has regretted or stopped doing necessarily. So like, again, pointing out these flaws, it's not shirking away from them. Um, but like, it, 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 it just, I think, heightens that a little bit more that then when Talmadge does go to Mickelson's place, and sees what's going on he's so disgusted uh by yeah. by all of this that it really i think even this this late in his life i think it um solidifies for him who he is going right. to be um and even if that who he is going to be is just the opposite of right. Mickelson, which he's already kind of on that path but now he definitively takes that stand Right, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. But I, I don't know if you had more to say on I feel all like that. I did, but I think I can wait two weeks because I forgot. I forgot <laughs> sure. what it was, and I, I think I'll probably remember sometime in the next yeah. few weeks. Sure. Well, then let's uh, let's call it for this yeah. one um for this episode we'll we'll pick back up on our discussion of the orchardist in two weeks um no punishments need to be doled out nobody broke any rules uh so we won't need to, to deal with that but we will in two weeks gentle listener be continuing our discussion of the orchardist uh so give us your feedback go to tapestryradio.org go to the contact section and put scotch talk in the subject line uh, to let us know what you're talking about um or you can find us on twitter at room with scotch or on Facebook in the Tapestry Radio Tap House. If you request to join, we will let you in unless you are a human trafficker. Um, <laughs> that has always been true, but it's all particularly so, true this time. I think that's, that should go without saying. That's, <laughs> exactly. Uh, we also promise we will, we will do your homework, but we don't promise to do your homework well. Uh, we do condone plagiarism because, yes, it's very funny. Uh, go to tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast, and the form is right there close to the top. Fill that out. Uh, give us your homework. We'll do our best. We'll make it fun. And you can turn that into your teachers and get a big fat F. Um, if you like this podcast, you can check out our other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, like Intermission, the Backstage Drama Podcast, Us Play Fiasco, the Fiasco RPG actual play podcast, and Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United actual play RPG podcast. Uh, Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcasts, uh, because we don't pay to advertise. That helps others find this and listen to it, uh, and then um, you can know that you are part of a community of people that listen to this instead of just being by yourself listening to it. Um, yeah, Ethan, where can they find you? I am at Bjartlet on Twitter. That's B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Uh, it's a thing I did when I was in, like, 10th grade because it was, like, a Bjork joke or something, and now I don't know how to change it. Um, I also have a webcomic, uh, Pin Porter Girl Detective. It is a fairy tale film noir uh, detective comic set in a small town in Wisconsin starring a 12-year-old girl detective who is much smarter than I am. Um, if that seems like your jam, go to pinporterdetective.com and check it out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I am on Twitter and Instagram at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. Uh, so you can check me out there and chat with me and stuff. So, yeah. With that, I guess, until next time, just remember, it's our party, and we'll cry if Amanda Coplin wants us to, even though we won't admit that that's why we are going to cry. But also we will. But we won't. Yeah, that
obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.